You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. Hi, I'm Eve Figui. In this episode of Modern Law, we will be discussing how we will govern ourselves in the metaverse. What is the metaverse? Well, it depends on who you ask, and we'll get to that in a minute. Suffice to say that for now, our analog world is on a gradual collision course with a more immersive embodied internet. To borrow a description used by Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Meta being Facebook's new company name. Whatever it becomes and however it is imagined by its pioneers, the metaverse is probably going to unlock plenty of new business opportunities. And it's going to connect buyers and sellers in a new online marketplace. Of course, where there's a market, there are contracts and eventually laws and regulations and codes of conduct. And of course, not everyone behaves honorably. So you can expect your lot of users behaving poorly, from acting in bad faith to committing crimes. So what are some of the legal implications that we should be thinking about as we build this immersive virtual world? And what are some of the opportunities for the legal profession? On our show today, we have Tufik Adluni. Aluni is the co-founder and managing director of Renault & Co., a Montreal-based law firm focused on emerging technology law. For the most part, he advises startup companies in the tech sector to raise equity financing and protect their intellectual property. He and Renault's other co-founder, David Oram, recently opened the first Metaverse law office, at least as far as I know. And he's going to tell us about that and more. Welcome to Feek. Yeah, thanks for having me. So listen, is it the first Meta Law Office that you opened. And uh, while you're answering that, might as well take the opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in in Web3. Sure. So it is from the Canadian law firm perspective, at least to to my knowledge. Uh, I do know of uh, another law firm in the United States that did open a Metaverse office as well. But from a Canadian standpoint, uh, to my knowledge, yeah, it, uh, we seem to be the first movers in the space. Uh, a bit of, of my background uh, and how I got into Web3, well, I was always interested in monetary policy. I did a minor in economics for my undergrad, and I always found it quite an intriguing subject and one that I really did enjoy. And it was especially, you know, I started my undergrad in 2008. So it was you know, right uh, when the financial crisis, the crisis of 2008 happened. So it was definitely the topic du jour and our classes were very dynamic uh, in that sense. And we had a you know great opportunity to talk about quantitative easing and credit default swaps and subprime mortgages and all the great stuff that we've associated with the 2008 crash. I guess fast forward to 2014, where the Ethereum ICO happened, I kind of began, you know, picking up interest through Ethereum and then through Bitcoin about this this new potential monetary revolution and uh, and what could that mean for members of, of our monetary system, which we all are. I think this was also kind of, galvanized by my background, I'm, I'm Lebanese of origin. And in Lebanon, the financial situation and trust with the banks and the central bank was always on a, on a precarious standing. In a way, having an ability to find a, a decentralized fashion for, for folks to exchange value, I thought was 
extremely encouraging for markets such as my um, my home country. I started practicing law in in in, in 20, 2017. Also, that's when I moved to Montreal from Quebec City, and I I started getting involved in in the Bitcoin and the Ethereum community locally. I uh, found that a lot of folks needed legal advice and needed lawyers, and I didn't even know that this was a thing. You know, I thought that my two worlds, one of being a lawyer and one of being a, uh, you know, a, a crypto enthusiast were, were never going to collide and it was just going to be a hobby. And uh, I was able to form, you know, a practice in that, in that area. And it's, uh, it's been history from there, I guess. <laughs> and so now you, uh, you've uh, opened this law firm in the metaverse. I understand you're interested in all these things from crypto to Web3, emerging technology in general. We're talking a little bit about Web3 today or the metaverse. Let's, let's try and start by defining things a little bit. What is the metaverse? Uh, why are we suddenly talking about it again? Who's involved? How do we see it developing? Those kinds of questions. Just for the for for the benefit of our readers to understand truly what we're what we're discussing here. Yeah, so I think maybe to put it very generally, uh, the metaverse is an ability for people to interact in a virtual world or a virtual environment. Uh, this isn't really anything new. You know, we've had games that have essentially done this. Games such as uh, Second Life, World of Warcraft. There's that other game that always escapes me, but your kids probably play. It's called uh, Front Right or something of the sort, where you you know you essentially have a form of metaverse that exists. I think the new kind of discussions that are coming up here, especially from the Web three angle, is the decentralized nature of the metaverse or metaverses, so to speak, that are being. Uh, built out by uh, you know a variety of different organizations and the ability for interactions on that on, in that metaverse or on that platform to be transactable uh, through kind of the power of of blockchain technology. So, what does so, that mean concretely? Uh, are we talking about uh, operating between different metaverses? There, there may be a day that that happens. The issue is that you know blockchains are are usually built on uh, certain protocols, and those protocols are are essentially their own networks and and interact within themselves. Now, a lot of the the, the most popular metaverses are being built on the Ethereum network, uh, but there's other ones such as Upland, which is being built on the EOS network. And there are some really smart people currently attempting to create kind of some sort of interoperability there. There is definitely uh, some form of interoperability through the exchange of assets that can, that can be done, you know, cross, you know, cross metaverses. But in terms of, you know, you being in, in decentralized and being able to walk into, into, into Upland or Sandbox, it's, it's, a, and, I, and those are two other meta, those are, Three metaverses that I just named, and you and you just to interrupt you. You've opened your office in Upland, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Correct. So right. we have one in Upland, and we are also going to announce in two weeks our 
second office in Decentraland. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking here. So we mentioned this notion of centralized versus decentralized, a centralized versus a decentralized metaverse. I'm going to say in the, I'm going to stay in the singular here. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to think about it in those terms? Well, it's, I think it's an important distinction because not to get too philosophical, and I may say that a couple of times during this conversation, <laughs> but uh, but but our, our you know our reality as it exists currently is essentially decentralized, decentralized in a sense that there is not one body that really governs you know the, the totality of the interactions within our within our system. Right now, you may say you know governments you know get fairly close. But you know, governments you know can't change uh, the laws of physics, for instance. Uh, so, with a metaverse that is centralized, which is similar to what Facebook is doing, you know, you essentially have a centralized body that will be similar to any of these Web 2.0 platforms. Will be able to dictate uh, much of what goes on in those you know in those ecosystems. Decentralized ones will allow for a much more open-ended kind of interaction with within amongst its members. They will have certain governance structures which anyone can partake in to to make decisions on behalf of the metaverse. But you know, in in theory, it's supposed to be a, a environment where there isn't a centralized direction kind of governing the the, the the rules of that environment. Right. And so where are we headed uh, or do we not know? Well, that I think that's a good question and it remains to be seen. We obviously have a lot of decentral, you know, decentralized metaverses such as, you know, the ones that I had just mentioned which are beginning to gain a lot of traction with you know major companies i think i read that nike was opening up a store in the metaverse etc like the, the, coming into the the environment and, and begin interacting with people in those environments on the flip side you have companies like facebook and twitter which are also going to move into these environments and they are going to do it in a more centralized fashion it remains to be seen who's going to win out, I would say. I, I would probably believe that similar to your current social media usages, you would probably use multiple uh, social media platforms depending on, you know, its particular use case that it brings. And again, if, if, you, if you have some inclination against Facebook for whatever reason, maybe that would, you know, encourage you to use more centralized ones. And if, you know, you have some reservations about decentralized ones, you may want to use Facebook's, which you know now calls itself Meta. It definitely remains to be seen, but I think both of them are kind of going in the same you know, fundamental direction in the sense that how are we going to augment our virtual experience from what it currently stands today? And if you let me kind of you know develop out that point, is that you know, we're, we're currently in, you know, a web 2.0 world, right? So what, what 1.0 was essentially opening up a website and putting content 
on that website. Web 2.0 is allowing a community of people to put content on that website. So, you know, this is your Facebooks, your Twitters, your Instagrams, your Snapchats, what have you. And, and we've seen kind of the revolution that that has created. Uh, it's allowed for, you know, a variety of different discussions, interactions, marketplaces, you know, not only kind of uh, buying and selling of goods, but marketplaces of ideas to kind of, uh, you know, converge upon these platforms. Uh, Web 3.0 is, and, and again, you know, the, I'm going to make a distinction on the terms here. You know, Web 3.0 is includes the metaverse, but not necessarily. Some folks call the metaverse Web 4.0, and, and Web 3.0 is really uh, decentralized web applications or um, or DApps. Again, I'll use Web 3.0 for the purposes of this conversation to encompass both, uh, you know, DApps as well as the metaverse. But there are some folks making uh, that distinction currently, but you know, essentially what, what, what Web 3.0 is, is that we increase the, the, the information points that are being exchanged between parties that are on these platforms, creating a more inclusive audiovisual experience. So, you know, if you go on to Clubhouse these days, you know, you go in, you, you enter into kind of a, an audio-only conversation with a lot of folks in that room. And, you know, chatting. If you go on to Facebook, there may be an experience where you're sending, you know, or you know, sending stories in a in a in a two D fashion. In the sense that you have to kind of like look at your screen and see a video occur on your screen to be able to, you know, take in that information. And Web three in the metaverse, you're going to be able to in the clubhouse situation, you know, maybe maybe create. A, a coffee shop environment where you can see people, people's gestures, and, and and maybe even even more advanced, a lot more touch points, people's emotions, people's uh, body language, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's so it's really, kind of the so, so, it's, so it's really an enhanced communication tool. Absolutely, I think I think that's that's where it's fundamentally is going. An enhanced communication tool, but also an enhanced method to 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 transact not only does the, the blockchain allow you to do this but you know you could visualize a certain future where you know you could put on your oculus uh which is a form of kind of vr headset and you enter into a a quote-unquote shopping mall or something of the sort and you can go around and take a look at shoes uh try those shoes and and potentially purchase those shoes in that in that in that environment, and then those shoes would you know be shipped to you in in the real world, or you know uh, they could also be given to you as a skin, and you can wear your avatar could wear the shoes, and you can look uh, you know kind of stylish in the metaverse as well. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be important. It's going to be important to look good in the metaverse. <laughs> well, you know the you know the clothes market right now is quite a big. A big selling point in the early days of the metaverse, as in today, folks are, you know, with the, what we call skins, and you can kind of put on skins on your avatar, and you can kind of, you know, design your avatar with these with these with these quote unquote purchase virtual reality clothes. 
uh, which you can also sell afterwards. So, it, you know, it creates kind of that, I don't want to use the word natural, but it's kind of a more natural kind of buying and selling environment. Instead of, you know, maybe now you may purchase a piece of clothing, it comes to your office or your home and you try it out. And maybe if you want to sell it, you got to go to Facebook Marketplace to sell it. Or I think Depop is another site where folks sell their, sell their clothes. You know, here, you know, it, it's kind of completely embodied within within the singular platform. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, like, so there's obviously retail business opportunities, whether you're buying for your avatar or for yourself in the real world. Uh, what are some of the other business opportunities that you see out there? And I guess, you know, you know, why why did you decide you, you went there, opened your your metaverse firm? You know, what pr- presumably you're going there because that's where you think the business is going to go to some extent. So what are those opportunities? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, currently what we're seeing in the metaverse as, you know, forms of exchange is obviously, like I said, skins that are being exchanged in the metaverse. You have um, art and in the form of, you know, NFT art being exchanged. Uh, you have as well a lot of property being exchanged. You have a lot of development of property people buying land parcels and essentially building you know structures on that property this may sound weird to some of your listeners but it's essentially it's you know a graphic designer who has you know some architectural skills building out something of the sort for you in which you can then uh, plug in to uh, the property itself and it could augment the underlying uh, nft asset that encapsulates encapsulates the property uh, as well as a visual aspect and a use case aspect so you know you can have you can have a house where people can walk through and and check out the art or 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 what have you in the future i i think the sky is is quite the limit in terms of the exchanges one thing that we may see is a lot of kind of abilities to you know literally buy and sell anything uh, go to casinos, I think is going to be a big one in the metaverse, being able to uh, do different types of exchanges. Really, you know, quite literally, the sky's the limit. The, the reason why we went to the metaverse ourselves is because we're of the opinion that we, we, we would like to meet where, where the client is, right? So, you know, my current kind of business practice is you know roughly I would say ninety percent digital asset related. We we do most most of our work with these companies, and we feel very comfortable with these companies and assisting them kind of on their process. So being able to meet them where they're at, I think is going to be an extremely key aspect to the way you know law firms are going to run their business. Similarly to the way you know law firms are currently on you know LinkedIn or Facebook, having that type of presence there may potentially you know allow for for certain interactions to occur uh, that otherwise may not have occurred and so, so, let, so let me just ask you like when you're meeting your client where where they are concretely or, or virtually <laughs> how, how does that how does that play out like are you are you greeting them in some sort of virtual office what does so, it look like yeah so maybe on a next call uh, and especially with our decentralized office, I would I would love to give you a tour, okay. uh, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, as as I think it could be quite interesting. But essentially, you know, and I think this is, uh, you know, maybe 
there's a, there's a variety of lawyers on the call and they have probably alarm bells ringing here and being like, well, you know, Tufik, you know, I know, how is this possible? How did you even think about, you know, did you think about solicitor client privilege, etc.? And I think these are good points to raise. I think what is essentially happening in, in the metaverse is, is nothing in which would, would compromise that type of exchange. All types of communication would then go out of the metaverse and happen on a Zoom or on a secure kind of messaging, you know, messaging platform, whether it be email or telegram. In the metaverse itself, you know, what we have, you know, is essentially a variety of pieces of content in which we discuss, you know, what we do, our service, the services that we offer, information about us, and also links so they can know who we are uh, a little bit more, links to our website, etc., uh, links to our email. So, and then they can kind of reach us if need may be. We may get cheeky as well, maybe. I always found it weird when I would visit kind of the classic law firm on, on in a 40th, 40th floor in a tower and, and, and you know they had artwork that was pretty uh, pretty extravagant so maybe maybe I'll try to compete with the big law firms and, and create a very extravagant uh, gallery of NFT art uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and have that showcased in my uh, in my metaverse office but yeah, that's just a cheeky bit of cheeky idea <laughs> that's a perfect way to give your clients a uh, reason to complain why am i why am i paying for these rates when they're just dressing the walls with their nfts <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but um but yeah on that point that i wanted to just make beforehand which was a big part of our our practice as a law firm is that we we try we try to learn by doing right so and and it's really it's really hard for 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 lawyers especially in the space in, in my humble opinion to to make you know to make qualified assessments on how you know contractual relationships are going to be governed if they haven't really you know got their feet wet a little and understood how it works right just at least from my from my kind of perspective right if you're if you're if you're trying to make risk assessments or draft contracts uh regarding you know staking as a service agreements which most people won't know what it is but that's kind of a you know a a a fancy contract that we use you know in, in, in in the crypto and blockchain world you know, how would you able to, how are you able to draft up an agreement of that sort? Even if you conceptually understand what staking is, how can you effectively draft that contract if you haven't went and attempted to stake something yourself, right? From, from you know, from a purely testing perspective, I think it's, I think it's, it's vital for the lawyers at our firm to have that, again, "Quote unquote real world experience," no pun intended, and 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 for them to kind of learn by doing, I think it adds a really um, important value to to uh, to our practice. I'm sure I'm sure it does, and I and I, I guess I like I suppose that the other value of learning by doing is that uh, by being there, uh, you're probably going to see uh, some of the some of the issues that arise. So let's talk a little bit about. Let's talk about some of the legal issues to consider. And I'm wondering, 
you know, uh, what are some of the areas of law that you seeing that you see being most disrupted, uh, to use a, a galvoded term, but like, uh, by the growth of the metaverse or, you know, is this just an alternate world in a virtual reality environment where the same old real world rules apply, whether they're contractual, regulatory, criminal, all these kinds of privacy issues, or is interacting in the metaverse going to have an impact on how law evolves? I think law is on a collision course with decentralized systems. And generally. Generally, yeah. And, and, and there is no real solution. You know, our, you know, our legal history as not only from a common law standpoint, but also you know, from other, you know, um, kind of bases of law is, is, is based around the notion of, of centralization, accountability and responsibility. You have a, you know, you have a CEO and directors who have you know, fiduciary duties towards the company. You have, you know, chief compliance officers that have duties, you know, to the regulator. You usually have, an, you know, a fairly easy way to point the finger to someone who has to take kind of ownership of the venture. It's a lot more difficult in decentralized systems, right? Who owns these systems, uh, and 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 how are decisions made, and 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 who and who's essentially running the show, and where does and I guess where, who has who has the fiduciary responsibility, and who has the responsibility? Now the the law has kind of come in on the side of what we expected to do is that even if you build out decentralized systems, I'm I'm summarizing it and reducing it, but there's a case in the U.S. Um, from 2018 called Ether Delta, which essentially a, 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 a fellow who you know who started a, a, a DeFi exchange was held was held liable for the actions of the decentralized um, uh, exchange. He he did not have an ability to avail himself of that responsibility, and they kind of pinned the program creator as the responsible person for that decentralized exchange. Now, it's a lot more nuanced than, than that because, again, we have to look at, you know, is, is control still being exerted? What was the time between the creation of the, you know, the decentralized system uh, by a certain person and how long have they been kind of out of the loop of the management of that, of that system? What happens if... You know, similarly to uh, the case of, of Bitcoin, where you know the creator of that system, you know, essentially is unknown and and vanishes. That that is going to be you know a really hard uh, nut to crack for you know our legal system. Another another fairly large collision course I see is the you know the dichotomy between anonymity and privacy. And and as uh, as they say in in the crypto world, doxing or apparently you know uh, revealing who you are you know uh, virtually. A lot of these systems are built out uh, with kind of privacy in mind. How do we you know how do we ensure that folks 
are 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 interacting in the virtual world in a way that they aren't taking advantage of that potential anonymity. And how do we exercise you know regulatory authority upon those systems to ensure that they do not have the option to you know interact anonymously when you know when the rules and regulations need them to be you know in specific you know with with AML and and kind of money laundering uh, uh, considerations. So yeah, that's that's another huge I would say part AML. Of yeah, yeah. Well, it is because a, a huge issue with with decentralized systems is that most of them. You know, at this time, most of them are not a KYCing. Just uh, for yeah. our, our, our listeners, AML, uh, anti money laundering uh, rules, basically. Correct, correct. And KYCing is know your client, or KYB is know your business. Uh, lawyers should be accustomed to this because we all have a quote unquote KYC obligation. Uh, and an AML obligation. The rule, the rules do apply to us in a in a in a certain sense um, via your via your 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 respective bar societies uh, regulations, um, and and usually it's not a you know usually it's not that big of a problem because most most transactions happen through banks and banks have that obligation. And, you know, you just have an obligation to kind of take a, you know, identification and kind of the ultimate beneficiary owners of a company and, you know, just have that on file so that when the bar, if they ever knock on your door, you show them that you've been doing that. How is it, how is it different in, uh, in Web 3 or 4? Or... Well, the, the principles remain the same, right? The principles remain the same. The difference, the difference is, is that it's not really happening. And that's a, a you know a very a very big issue because you know you, you you can you can technically by going on to you know any of these decentralized exchanges effectively you know launder you know launder your 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 crypto and that's obviously you know a great concern for the regulators for us all. Now it is it does bring light to this type of type of situation. Obviously, I think we were joking last week that you know people people have been using artwork to to launder money for quite some time and no one's really talked about it. Uh, but um, uh, jokes no, nothing, nothing new about money laundering. Yeah, nothing new about money laundering for sure. And I think, you know, money laundering can happen in, in a variety of ways. Obviously, real estate, you know, it's been topical in Canada that, you know, real estate has been used, you know, currently, you know, to, to essentially wash money or um, fancy cars, and 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 in any in any situation uh, such as you know including this one you know it does give rise to to those risks so it's going to be it's going to be and this is obviously a big part of our challenge is kind of educating you know our clients on on these risks and 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 also assisting them with 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 moving forward uh, and, and to build out these types of provisions Kind of within within their um, you know within their business operations, and what and what else what what other issues are I mean I've 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 seen people raise concerns about you know, obviously securities issues um, yeah. competition laws another one uh, believe it or not that uh, that pops up so competition law yeah is interesting it, it's just started to kind of pop up but it is definitely something that will come into play I'm I'm not a competition law expert. 
uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I, I do think that is an interesting conversation that we're going to start having. Are we worried about Meta or Facebook or however you want to call it? Is, is that part of the is that part that, of the that's that's part of it yeah that's part of it but there has you know there's been a lot of movement and again i, I take this with a big asterisk because this is not my field of expertise but there has been a lot of uh, movement in in antitrust in in the united states and uh the moves against facebook and google uh in in antitrust uh in the united states have been a huge shift. They were based upon these papers, and I didn't read these papers. I forget which. She was a professor in Stanford that essentially wrote papers putting a, an antitrust case against Facebook and, and Google. Effectively, there had to be consideration for an antitrust case to to develop. And 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 the thing that Google and Facebook would rely on is that they were giving their services for free, right? Mm -hmm. So in the sense. There was no consideration and there is no antitrust case because it's, it's, it's a free, it's being freely used. However, she effectively argued that the consideration in this, in this situation is data and your personal data that is being mined to the benefit of uh, these organizations, uh, you know, is, is effectively the consideration. And mm -hmm. based upon that, the United States has, has made moves against both companies. Yeah, I haven't been really following the, the, the cases themselves. But I guess I guess, I guess yeah. the idea is that this could, this could be transplanted into the into the metaverse context. Yeah, and yeah, for for sure, for sure. And I again, it, it's still it's still a nascent it's still a nascent industry, so it remains to be seen. But these but it raises even, yeah. But it raises a good point, which is that you know a lot of I think a lot of the concerns from a legal vantage point about the metaverse seem to find their root in how we've seen things develop in web 2.0. This is why I guess privacy seems to be a major issue as a cybersecurity. We've seen, you know, it was interesting. I, I listened to one podcast lately on, uh, on lawfare and they were discussing, you know, the whole issue about, you know, content moderation, how content moderation is just going to be a nightmare in this environment because, you know, how do you, how do you enforce hate speech rules against someone who's wearing a you're against an avatar who's wearing a t-shirt with something uh particularly evil written on it mm -hmm. you know th this complicates matters quite a bit and then i think it brings in all these like privacy issues too how do you ensure good content moderation and respect privacy uh rules at the same time i think you might have been sort of alluding to that earlier yeah it's gonna um, be it's gonna be a huge battle uh sorry continue well, I mean, I guess, so I guess the question is, uh, you know, what, what are some of the lessons uh, to be learned from how we managed or, or mismanaged the building of, of the governance framework for Web 2.0? You know, and I guess, you know, I guess I'm really trying to address here, how do we, you know, in part, how we struggle with containing some of the worst uh, features that we've seen emerge from our, our, our sort of relationship with big tech? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I think part of the answer really is, which is also part of the problem, but it solves it in part, is the decentralized nature of these of these metaverse ecosystems. Okay. One of the things that Facebook and, and 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 kind of government officials have had issues with Facebook with is that you know essentially the company was incentivized to you know uh, prioritize uh, inflammatory content. Or, or, or quote unquote fake news because it essentially created a lot of interaction, 
and a lot of shares, right? Mm -hmm. So it also allowed for people to effectively live in their bubble, uh, so to speak. So in a sense, you know, Facebook's goal, you know, is, you know, is obviously to keep people on the platform, right? They sell ads. They need you, you know, they need your attention. They need your, they need your eyeballs on their application Mm -hmm. for everything to work. So the, the incentive structures for Facebook to, to, prioritize inflammatory or egregious content that creates a lot of discussion or for trolls to just say whatever and 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 solicit you know huge you know huge pushbacks was kind of baked into those to those platforms that doesn't exist that doesn't exist in a decentralized platform so mm-hmm. that that solves that issue but the other issue is obviously you know, the KYC, you know, the, the ability for people to be docs, the ability for people to at least be known on these platforms. Obviously, one, one way which is to, to, you know, speak with the governance structures of these decentralized systems, which are decentralized themselves, but they do have decision-making processes in place to ensure that their platforms and access to those platforms have the ability to, 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 you know, KYC uh, individuals who want to interact on those platforms. We can also kind of look at the Reddit model that still keeps you, I would say, anonymous to a certain mm-hmm. extent, but you have kind of moderators that are, you know, community moderators that have to moder- moder- moderate certain subreddits. That is also a potential uh, solution, but... Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't really have the answers. I'm. I'm kind of just pontificating here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's quite all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess another part, another issue that's sort of interesting is that uh, you know when we look at the governance of the internet, though, too, is that uh, there's all these. You know, we have to apply all these domestic laws, right? And we have to. We've had to manage and govern the internet through these domestic laws, which, which are very different, very widely from one jurisdiction to the next. How how does the how does how does the metaverse deal with that? Is that going to is is it are we just faced again with the same problem or is this is this it's, a, it's, a, another, is, is this it's an, another collision course? It's yeah. it's another it's another one of these kind of slow moving car crashes that I see, which right. is our national governments the effective vehicle to regulate and and uh, individuals. I'm sure I'm sure some folks are going to. I'll be super happy with that that statement, but I think I think it's important to kind of raise the flag and kind of say, well, the the internet has essentially made you know our world much more smaller, right? Mm-hmm. Where our ability to interact with people all over the world is 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 kind of the status quo at the moment, and it's only going to be more so in the future, right? Blockchain is is a truly, and, and and the metaverse is a truly global community, right? There, it's 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 you you have people operating in the space all over the world, and and it's kind of a beautiful thing if you look at it in a certain way. And and in our practice, you know, though we're based in Montreal, we do so much work just internationally, right? Everyone is just everywhere, and everyone's doing you know these types of activities from all corners of the globe. I don't think we're gonna 
blow up the kind of quote-unquote Westphalian structure as it stands currently. But I think that we're going to have to have a lot more uh, government cooperation on this sense. And we do we do have precedence for this, right? You know, with AML, there is the FATA, FATF, right, which is essentially, you know, driving a lot of our national rules around AML. And, you know, we've had the global community kind of come together to, to, to build out frameworks that governs kind of a global problem. You know, we have the multilateral treaty with respect to tax that solves, solves that as well. Obviously in light of, you know, the, 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 the Panama papers and whatnot, there are precedents for, you know, um, countries to come together and build these global frameworks. And I think, I think we've seen kind of things happen with Europe and GDPR. And I think we're going to see more of it in the future. Again, I don't know if the, if, 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 the, if the Western world will be able to align together and, and, and I don't know if they'll be able to get other players on board uh, that are, you know, very prominent, you know, in the virtual world, such as China and India. But at least that's kind of, you know, my, my best thinking on, on how to kind of solve these things. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, it is true that perhaps over the last, uh, at least, you know, from from the mid 2000s on uh, to, you know, only a couple of years ago, it seemed as if that we were sort of sleepwalking through, you know, some of these problems that were emerging from, you know, the, the, the use of online platforms and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of wonder if, you know, Facebook's rebranding into meta, it's a bit of a speculative question, but how, will it? Do you think that something like that could galvanize governments into saying, "Okay, wait a second, you know, we, we we've been to this dance before. Uh, let's let's start putting our thinking caps on and 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 watching out for this a little more carefully." Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. But I'm I'm going to come in with a couple of hot takes here. Uh, okay, okay, <laughs> my yeah. So my hot takes is that the legislatures of respective countries and you know government apparatus are just not equipped to deal with this because they just don't they just don't know they just don't get it to be quite frank right you know if you watch kind of the congressional hearings on defi and whatnot you have you know not to paint broad brushstrokes but a certain demographic of of people who are congressmen and and, and you have them asking questions on things that they completely don't understand. And, and, and you have folks in positions of power, like, you know, Christine Lagarde, you know, at, at the ECB, you know, you know, stating kind of tropes about, about, about the crypto, about the crypto world, you know, which are, you know, which, you know, in my, in my humble opinion are, are, are you know, sound like they, they haven't been, you know, these are statements that are, are not coming from a position of knowledge, right? And, and and it's a lot to ask for them. They got a lot to do. Like, this is not something that they're going to, like, deep dive into to figure out the intricacies of how it works. So how do you, how do you square, you know, how do you square that round hole? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think it kind of comes back to the fact that we potentially need to see newer and a newer form of of political engagement amongst amongst young people, amongst uh, people in the technology sector, people who understand 
you know, these areas and have their voice heard, you know, in parliament or, or, or elsewhere. I think they are, I think they are massively underrepresented. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's doing everyone a disservice because our world is very, is in an extremely fast manner moving to a dematerialized world. Right. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of talking about this, you know, before where, you know, I was watching, you know, I was watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine on, on Netflix and, you know, cops walking the beat and, you know, they see a bad guy, you know, robbing a shop and they go and they grab him and they, you know, and they arrest him. That's just not how crime works, right? Crime is online. It's anonymous. It's hidden. It's, and, and, and it's complicated because it has this technology overlay and, our, our law enforcement, you know, well-equipped to deal with these types of problems, the problems of the 21st century. I, I, I don't, I don't believe at least that they are. So we're going to need, we're going to need to either see a fundamental shift on, you know, how we approach these things. Mm-hmm. And that really comes, I think, from the, the top down with leadership, taking the reins and emphasizing that this is going to be kind of you know, a priority for them to get to get educated on these things so they can effectively make proper policy decisions. If you were to guess uh, where the first regulatory interventions would come in, where what would it be? You know, because I, I imagine certain problems are going to be more more urgent uh, to deal with, more urgently needed to deal with than others. That question I can answer confidently. It's going to be tax in AML <laughs> because because yeah AML because it's 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 obviously extremely it's, it's a high level of priority for for governments to 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 deal with you know money laundering and anti-terrorist financing and on the tax side again it's 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 going to be detrimental for you know governmental revenues if everyone moves their assets to a digital framework and, you know, do not claim it, you know, those are, you know, substantial loss revenues for, for governments. And, and, and I think, you know, they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to want that at all. Yeah. Even government has its priorities. Um, what, <laughs> oh, <it's true>. what, <laughs> it is true. What, what are you, you know, as co-founder of Reno, Reno and co, what are you most going to be paying attention to uh, as this field develops over the the coming years? Yeah, I think my my belief, and and, and, I, and I and I and I do think that uh, decentralized finance is 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 very much the next. It's 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 you know we we've heard it we've we've talked about it, but the evolution and the power of decentralized finance is going to be absolutely massive it's you know i think it's going to change the 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 entire way in which our financial systems operate and let me kind of you know give a little context for the reader here so you know currently our financial systems are run by financial institutions mostly banks and you know banks are essentially you know centralized entities that have you know massive overhead large back offices outdated legacy systems to, to, to conduct their businesses. If you run with the assumption that dematerialization always wins, and what I mean by dematerialization, I mean it's the process of taking an action that has happened 
in the real world and dematerializing. A great example mm -hmm. is how you consume content, right? Beforehand, if you wanted to read the paper, there was a large supply chain logistics and printing operation that had to happen to get your eyeballs onto a piece of text, mm -hmm. right? And that included maybe maybe you did this when you were a kid, you know, I, you know, a young guy or a young girl kind of like throwing papers at the door, right? And and having you know printers and having distribution centers, and 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 all of that to get content to you today we get content through a click of a button, right? And you have instantly removed, you have instantly removed the distributors, the the, the printers, and, and everything else in between to create a more efficient manner to bring about information to you. I think that efficient manner exists with finance through decentralized finance and smart contracts. Mm -hmm. Because I could go today I can go today and I can get a loan in seconds with against my Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? I can go on. I can either do it through a centralized platform like uh, Celsius or, or, or BlockFi, or I can go on to a decentralized platform and do it such as, you know, HODL, HODL or FTX. And in that sense, I've completely cut out a huge amount of the necessary capital, effort, and, and, and inefficiencies that exist for me to go get a loan at the bank, mm -hmm. right? I can do it in, in a matter of, you know, clicking a button. That is a pure case of when dematerialization wins over current systems. And I think that's going to be a really, a really empowering part of decentralized finance is allowing for, especially folks who maybe for whatever reason, have poor credit ratings or, or, or are, are marginalized from the current you know, financial system uh, as it can, to be able to have access to that capital to do whatever they need to do in life. Obviously, it comes with its, with its challenges, as we've you know, discussed uh, at length, but yeah, I think that's going to be kind of the biggest changer, in my opinion, in, in the space. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm supposing that you can't, you know, you can't probably purchase a, a a house using those means but again if we're looking at the long oh you can I mean, you can you can you can you can get a mortgage on DeFi. so the way you get a mortgage on DeFi is that you nft your land deed and then you stake your nft in a platform that gives mortgages against properties and you uh have uh an ability to get decentralized mortgages it's happening today this is happening already today that's wild. so yeah um <laughs> that saves you a lot of trouble in terms of getting mortgages which is you know obviously a huge part of you know bank operations and and this is all done by smart contracts so it's done algorithmically which is one of the one of the most wildest part, parts about it is that the human capital to be able to produce the same output is reduced, you know, quite substantially through the technology. Yeah, it's 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 for me. I find that very very fascinating. And so 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 these worlds really are colliding. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We've already worked on these types of projects. 
So they've been very fun. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, so so to close out, what would you what would you actually then uh, you know if you had a message to convey to uh, the legal community out there with respect to all of this happening, like what would what's your message to them? What would you say to them? Or actually, what would you say to a young a young career starter uh, entering the profession who wants to you know who wants to become familiar with this? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a great question. I think, you know, feel free to reach out to me on, on LinkedIn or on, um, on Twitter and, and, you know, we would be happy to chat further. You know, for law firms that want to, you know, that have kind of clients in this, in this space and, and want to be able to serve their clients better, you know, I think, you know, likewise, they can reach out to us and, you know, we'd be happy to kind of assist you know, I think for, for a young, uh, you know, practitioner and upstarter, I think, I think staying close to technology is going to be extremely key for your practice. I think questioning, questioning everything is going to be equally as important. You know, one of the reasons why I started my own practice is, is that I was, this is back in 2017, so things may have changed, but I was pretty appalled by the lack of innovation that was happening in kind of my previous law firm. Mm-hmm. Like we were, you know, we were still putting time entries on Excel, sending out, you know, invoices uh, as, you know, as Word documents, you know, essentially, you know, saved as PDFs. Emails, we were printing them out and putting them into accordion binders. If you go to court, you know, the clerks were still running, writing by hand, the, the judgments of of the judge, I was like, this is 2017, guys, <laughs> right? And uh, what what is going on? And the profession the profession is conservative by nature, and I respect that. It's 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 going to be it's going to be necessary for us to learn how to leverage technology. And leverage, you know, the tools that we have at our disposable disposal today to be able to, you know, make law more accessible, uh, more affordable, and and more humane. And and I think this is a big talking point on our end uh, because, you know, at Renault Co. We've 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 not only, you know, are a, you know a firm that works you know in digital asset law, but we also are you know practice what we preach again and attempt to use kind of the best of technology of what technology has to offer in the firm, you know, in behalf of our clients and also try to try to really uh, embody a a good work-life balance. And and I think that technology can really help us get there. Maybe, you know, final, final point on that. And it's a, it's something that I, I say quite often is, you know, when the, when the ATM was rolled out, I think it, I think it was in the 70s. A lot of the bank clerks were up in arms because they said, well, they're going to take our work. But we have more bank clerks today than we did in the 70s. <laughs> so so what happened, right? What happened was... Shorter that, lineups. Yeah, well, shorter lineups <laughs> and that their role evolved, that they were able to do other tasks, right, that they may not have been able to give as much attention to because they now have you know, this, this potential ATM assisting them with these tasks. I think lawyers got to have to look at technology in that way, because, 
it's 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 not about you know billing more hours. It's about you know producing the same value more efficiently. And I think that if we can get that, we can kind of solve what I think is the biggest crisis in the legal profession currently, which is the current mental health crisis, right? Where we have lawyers that are sad, they are upset, they are overworked, they're leaving their they're leaving their firms in droves, and 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 there there is a solution there, and I think technology is it. Amongst other things, it shouldn't. It's not the only thing, but. Uh, thanks, Tufik. That was uh, that was a fascinating discussion. It's an important point that you just raised at the end there too. But I, for one, am, am intrigued about where this is all headed. These are definitely things to think about as we take stock. Uh, thank you so much, Tufik Adluni, for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate the time, and thanks for having me on. And uh, we, I hope to uh, I hope to to follow this discussion with you in the future. Yeah, likewise. Uh, anytime, we'd be happy to jump on. Okay. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Law, one of our CBA podcasts, and you can hear this podcast and others on our main CBA channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and to hear some French, listen to Droit Moderne. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA Natmag and on Facebook. And uh, check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. And once again, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our podcast editor, ACD Productions. We'll catch you in the next month.